I said that I wanted to have kids, and you said that you wanted me to have a vasectomy. What did I do? And then, oh, when you said that you might want to have kids, and I wasn't so sure, who had the vasectomy reversed? And then when you said you definitely didn't want to have kids, who had it reversed back? Stip, stop, stip, stop, stip, stop. That was a confused and frustrated Michael Scott from the American TV show The Office. To talk all things vasectomies, today's guest on this episode of the Overpopulation Podcast will reveal the wisdom in his personal reimagining of a famous saying, one small snip for man, one giant leap for human kindness. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, where we tirelessly make overshoot and overpopulation common knowledge. That's the first step in right-sizing the scale of our human footprint so that it is in balance with life on Earth, enabling all species to thrive. I'm Nandita Bajaj, co-host and executive director of Population Balance. I'm Alan Ware, co-host of the podcast and researcher with Population Balance, an organization that educates about and offers solutions to address the impacts of human overpopulation and overconsumption on the planet, people, and animals. We are really excited to welcome Dr. Esgar Guarin to our podcast today. But before we dive into that conversation, we do have some listener feedback we'd love to share with you. That's right. We've got a letter from Kay, and he says, You did it again. You added another intelligent and very capable woman to your team. Dr. Phoebe Barnard said it very well. The men should step aside in our critical time in human history and let women take over the leadership to fix the mess we have created. And here's one from Stephanie. She says, I cannot say bravo enough times for all the informative podcasts Population Balance has and is producing. I forward your name and podcast to people constantly. I am a marine biologist and know that the only answer to help save us and every other species on the planet is to face the overpopulation crisis. Of course, we need to still focus on all the other green things we are doing, but those will never be enough and nothing is sustainable unless our human numbers are. Your podcasts give us solid information to educate others on this critical topic. Well, thank you so much, Kay and Stephanie, for your really valuable feedback. We encourage all of our listeners to write to us to share your feedback at podcast at populationbalance.org or by simply using the contact page on our website, populationbalance.org. Today's guest, Dr. Esgar Guarin, is a board-certified family and reproductive health specialist. Originally trained in Colombia, he is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians in the U.S. and a member of the Medical Advisory Board at World Vasectomy Day. Now based in Iowa, Dr. Guarin was awarded the Family Physician of the Year Award from the American Academy of Family Physicians in Iowa in 2017. Always interested in the provision of reproductive services, particularly those of minimally invasive nature, Dr. Guarin had the privilege of training in the non-scalpel, no-needle vasectomy technique with renowned Dr. Doug Stein in 2012. Since then, Dr. Guarin has been performing his simple vase vasectomy technique with similar outcomes to those of his mentor. Committed to the promotion of vasectomies as the most effective method of permanent sterilization, he now works as medical director of Simple Vaz Vasectomy Clinic in Iowa. Dr. Esgar Guarin, it is so great to have you with us today. 
Much of our work at Population Balance is about offering education and advocacy for reproductive autonomy and reproductive responsibility. And we're so excited to bring you into this conversation because you've been spearheading the same work, but for men, which is really fantastic because traditionally men have been largely missing from these conversations. And what's even more exciting is the way you are approaching this work. You are bringing in humor, creativity, and lots of determination. So welcome to our podcast. Nandita, thank you very much for having me here. Alan, thank you very much for having me here. I'm really excited. I have had an opportunity to learn about what your organization does, and it's a wonderful opportunity to be here sharing a little bit of what I do and what we do from World Vasectomy Day, which is a nonprofit that I belong to. We can hardly wait to talk to you. And we'll start with our first question, which is that you've been practicing medicine for 20 years, and you've moved from general practice to obstetrics to performing vasectomies, which is now your full-time work. What motivated your journey to becoming a surgical vasectomist? I will tell you that from a very early age, I learned the power of the word vasectomy. And the reason for that was because about the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I heard that my mother demanded that from my dad. And uh, judging by the facial expression of my father and his immediate behavior following that demand, (laughs) I questioned the power of that word. And I didn't know clearly what it was. Later on, when I went to medical school, obviously, I understood what this was. And I was amazed about how simple this procedure was and the potential impact from the public health standpoint this procedure could have. But in medical school, at least in my country, in Colombia, the idea of doing vasectomies meant that I had to dedicate myself to the training of urology which is a very specific specialty dedicated to the genital urinary system. It made sense, but it seemed that for such a tiny procedure, it was a big undertake that I really didn't want to take. I didn't want to go that path. Sure. I completed my medical training and I worked for the government in Colombia, which is required after medical school for you to get your license in a very small town. 2,500 people in the town and 2,500 people scattered throughout the mountains in the middle of the Andes in Colombia. And that experience changed my life and changed what I wanted to do with medicine, Hmm. which had been initially actually psychiatry. I was really, really interested in the behavior of people. You know, the reason why people do certain things, the reason why people choose certain things, that was very interesting to me. Hmm. But that experience in Colombia changed my mind. So, you know, I was the only physician in that small town. So fresh out of medical school, 23 years old, and having to deal with everything in that town. So we ended up delivering about 55 pregnancies, took care of children, injuries. I would go to the mountains and take care of people in the mountains every two weeks. I would see 60, 70 people at a time. It was great. I mean, it was one of those things that really makes you feel like you made the right decision with your life when I decided to choose that as a profession. Sure. But I felt that I didn't have enough training. I ended up coming to the U.S. because of my wife. She's a microbiologist and she came to do some training at the University of Maryland. We actually met at that small town. And then when it became a permanent thing, I had to validate, so to speak, my training in the U.S. Right. So I could continue with my training. And I learned about this thing called family medicine. And I saw that would allow me to reach out to young families, which had been a huge impact for me during my brutal social mandatory service in Colombia. 
So I decided to do family medicine, but mostly because I wanted to take care of pregnancies and children. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that allowed me to see a lot of the difficulties that women have to go through in terms of reproduction and brought up again that interest on vasectomies and what you can do with a vasectomy. Normally, family physicians have rotations through urology. And during my rotation through urology, I asked to be trained on that. I said, I mean, this is a simple procedure. You need to know the anatomy. It doesn't have major complications. But the urologist said no. He said no because you're, you're a family doctor. Hmm. And at that point, I didn't know that the majority of vasectomies in the world are actually performed by GPs, general practitioners, and family physicians. 43% of the vasectomies in Canada are, are performed by family physicians. But I was very disappointed. So when I finished my training in family medicine, I wanted to acquire additional training to get more skills in the care of pregnancies and children and newborns. So I went to Providence in Rhode Island and I did an additional training, two years in maternal and child health. During that time, I remember approaching my program director and telling her, I, I really want to learn how to do vasectomies. And she's like, well, you're doing an obstetric and newborn fellowship. And I said, yeah, but it's just, this is maternity care. If I can reduce unintended pregnancies, sure. I am reducing in a certain way maternal mortality. Yeah. So why wouldn't I? And she said, well, okay, go and talk to the urologist to train you. And I said, no, they're not going to do it. And sure enough, they wouldn't do it. And, and I needed her leverage and it never happened. Huh. It, it wasn't until I was done. So I stayed there two years and I, and I stayed out there for an additional year as a faculty at Brown University. And then I decided to leave to a place where my skills could be better used. So I ended up in the Midwest for that reason. But it wasn't until after I had left the academic arena that I was able to find somebody who would train me. And then I got that training. So that's how I went from you know, being crazy, no pun intended, about psychiatry in medical <laughs> right. school, all the way to doing vasectomies. So I learned how to do them, but it was one more thing that I did. It was not the main thing I was doing. Sure. It was important to me to offer it because of my work with pregnant women. I was more interested in doing a vasectomy than doing a tubal ligation on a patient, and I would try to offer it. But there is resistance. People are expecting women to make that decision, and that is not right. So I went through several years of practice. I got my fair share of sleep deprivation with the practice of obstetrics. And finally, after seeing from the front row everything that women go through and how the burden of contraception has been unfairly placed on the shoulders of women and some experiences I had along the way that I said, I just don't feel that I'm having enough social projection beyond the patient and the family that I have in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I was doing something good, but it just didn't feel like it was enough. Sure. Still like at an individual level, right? You're helping individual families and individual right. children, but not changing behaviors at a large scale. And, and I was already having kind of a taste of that bigger social projection because I had started going since 2015, I became associated somehow with World Vasectomy Day because of the person I trained with. So I just felt that I needed to spend more time doing that. And then in every single time I was going overseas for a training mission and teaching how to do vasectomies and talking about vasectomies, I just felt so re-energized. You know, I would be wiped out completely from endless sleep deprived nights yeah. uh, doing obstetrics with the satisfaction of, of obstetrics, helping these families navigate through the whole process. 
but I would be wiped out, completely exhausted, and, and all of a sudden without being a vacation, because whenever we've gone to Haiti or we've gone to South America, you know, we get there and the very same day we start working. It's like doing vasectomies, teaching, doing vasectomies. I mean, we don't stop. Yeah. But I would feel so re-energized coming back that my wife, I mean, she got to spend time with me while I was doing all that. And then she said, I understand why is that you come back so crazy excited yes. every time you go to these things. Because it's a group, it's a big group of like-minded people who want to do something good. Yes. And it's, it's different. You know, I felt like I was caught in their routine of the medical practice in the U.S. And I was just trying to be a, an isolated silo where I would do things my way in terms of that social projection. But it was very limited. So about a little over a year ago, I said, no more. That's it. And it was a difficult decision for several reasons. Because are you going to just do vasectomies? Yeah. Well, you have to pay the bills with that. That's one thing. Two, I had to leave something that I had trained myself for. Yeah. To take yeah. care of pregnancies. Yeah. And to take care of young families. And basically, I'm going to put that on the side. Initially, it was difficult because the thought process was, I'm going to waste everything I did. And that couldn't have been any more wrong than that. Because right. It was not wasting it. It was what I needed to understand even more what I'm doing now. The whole experience of going th yeah. through the entire medical practice just gave me enough material to understand and not only understand, but also to have enough arguments to promote what I'm doing right now. Yes. Oh, I love that story. I'm so glad you went into the details of how it came about because it shines through basically when you're speaking and in the work that you're doing that everything that you've been doing in the last 20 years was leading up to this moment and preparing you to this work, which you are such a wonderful advocate for. You took it even a step further in, into your advocacy. You started a mobile vasectomy trailer <laughs> to help yes. normalize and make vasectomies more accessible. We'd love to hear what that journey was like. I've, I've always realized in the practice of medicine, whenever you do something that people are not expecting, you create a higher impact. And I'm not trying to write anything in and psychology, I mean, everybody understands that. I mean, if you are disruptive, that is going to create a bigger imprint in the mind of people. Hmm. So, but in my own personal practice of medicine, I always did that. Hmm. You know, if I say, well, I'm going to go and see you at home, it's like, oh, the doctor's going to come and see me in my house, right? Or if I answer the phone and I call the patient myself, which sometimes is what should be done, yes. but it is not necessarily expected in an environment like in the United States. People will be like, oh, this guy called me. So I understood very early that whenever you're doing something unexpected, you really create that commotion that would lead to perhaps behavioral changes, mm. or at least would leave the idea lingering of what you want to accomplish. That's why when in 2017, when we went to World Vasectomy Day in Mexico City, the Secretary of Health allowed us to operate in mobile units. And these are mobile primary care units. I mean, this is not a novel idea. It's been used in other countries as well for placement of next planons or implants, uh, IUDs, and regular visits and checkups. It was a great opportunity. You know, So we had four of these trucks parked alongside the Monumento de la Revolución, which is like the National Mall in Washington, D.C., but in, in Mexico City. So this mm -hmm. is a very representative area in the core of the city. 
we did 130 vasectomies <laughs> that day. People coming off the street. We had to process it up. They would come and talk to a social worker. They would come and then talk to a general physician and then come and get the vasectomy with us. And I thought it was fantastic because one of the things that is so wonderful about vasectomies is the mobility of vasectomies. And what I mean by the mobility is that you can put it anywhere without requiring a lot of infrastructure, which is what doesn't happen with a tubal ligation. Right. Right. A tubal ligation requires an operating room. And even though there are countries like in Bolivia and India where there there are programs to do tubal ligations under local anesthesia, which is, if you ask me, I think it's barbaric. It doesn't still have the same mobility Mm -hmm. because you have to have a different kind of setup for that. So vasectomies have this wonderful mobility that using a vehicle, a medical vehicle, where you can just transport the surgeon to places... But in countries like in Mexico or in Indonesia, where World Vasectomy Day actually had an opportunity to do a similar thing. And also in Nepal, which has been described in the literature, that whenever you use these units, the uptake of reproductive services increases. Mm-hmm. It's done in those places because they don't have the surgeons in remote areas and they want to travel with the surgeon. Doing it in the U.S., didn't seem like that was going to be the reason for it. So I saw that. I thought it was brilliant. I was. I thought it was genius. I said, this is ridiculous. This is a great way to talk about vasectomies. And we can do it in the States. We, we have better roads. Yeah. I mean, it's flat land in many areas, so we can just drive without the worry of just having to drive around the Andes, like in my country, in Colombia. So it's much better. But we don't do it there because there are not enough vasectomy surgeons but because people are not talking enough about that. Sure. So I came back with that crazy idea and I had that idea in my head for three years, three years. And I said, if I do that here, nobody would expect that. We live in a society where medical care is expected to happen at the ivory tower. Yes. Anything outside of the ivory tower is just not good enough. That's a third world thing. Yes, right. Which is inappropriate. That's not good. And that's not true. We do know that if we were to take a lot more procedures and things out of the hospital, then the healthcare will be less expensive. And we know that only 10% of the diseases actually make it to the hospital. 90% of the diseases can be managed in the outpatient setting. Wow, that's an incredible stat. A lot of prevention would go a long way. You know, really the patients who end up in the hospital are the ones who make the news, but there's a lot of stuff that happens outside. So because people are expecting that red carpet treatment, coming up with something so unexpected, like a mobile unit doing vasectomies when this perception exists of this major surgery, which is going to be disruptive. Either it's going to be culturally disruptive or it's going to be financially disruptive for me if I do it, (laughs) because I'm just going to waste my effort and my finances doing something like this. So I toyed around with the idea And finally, in 2020, that was my transition from doing obstetrics the way I was doing it. I say that's when it really got itchy for me to leave and start doing something at a bigger scale. I told my wife, I said, this is the idea. You know, I've been thinking about this a long time. And thank goodness she bought into that because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it because it came out of our own resources to do that. World Vasectomy Day has been very instrumental in, in supporting us, but 
It's been a lot of moral support, to put it that way. But most of the finances have come out of what we have. Sure. And it was a huge gamble. And to be honest with you, we never did it thinking we were going to get financial return out of that. And we don't, actually. The bulk of my vasectomies, the vasectomies that I do that pay the bills, happen in the two offices that I have. Right. The mobile vasectomy clinic has been literally the vehicle of my activism. Hmm. And every month I travel around the state. This mobile vasectomy clinic, it's a medical office on wheels that has a bunch of very suggestive messages around it <laughs> and a lot of sperm. And somehow when people <laughs> see sperm, they giggle that yes. you see. <laughs> totally. And, and that gets their attention. Yes. So we, we travel around and do that. And it's purely for the proselytism of it, you know, mm-hmm. just for the activism yes. you know, to talk more about this. Right. And generate that controversy that elicits conversations. Yeah, so it certainly we did. did. That, but that's what I said. You should have said crazy because it was crazy. It was, a, it was a crazy idea. Do you get covered by media in uh, Iowa newspapers and radio? We did. So the mobile unit is nothing but a big box, right? And it was black. And when we got it, what we did was we put some wrapping around it with some messages because the idea is just to generate the discussion. We, we didn't want to be discreet. Let me put it that way. I didn't want it just this black thing that looks like a like an office driving around. No, no. We just create even more taboos. That's right. It's like, oh no, the secrecy of vasectomies. No. Right. And just make it get it out of the closet, so to speak. Yes. So put this wrapping and it was it was eye-catching. It was kind of yellow with black, kind of going a little bit with the colors of the state uh, because people here are like the Hawkeyes and Iowa State University. So <laughs> anything that it has those red, yellow, and black colors just gets people attention because people are very, very fanatics of, of the college sports. And put the messages, you know, time to be responsible, love with respect. And then the very back of the trailer, it says, honk if you got a vasectomy. And people would just do that. And we started seeing that coming up in social media. I was really not following social media enough to see how much was happening. But then for World Vasectomy Day this year, when we decided to make a trip to New York City with a trailer, we changed the entire wrapping and we changed the words that we put there and we changed the color, made it black and white Hmm. and wrote the word vasectomy really big in both sides and put a ton of sperm. So it has a, a meaning to it because it's just this sperm going towards the front of the trailer and then the word vasectomy. And after the word vasectomy, there's nothing. You know, <laughs> right. it's a black void. So it's just this idea that, you know, the vasectomy stops them. And then that actually created more interest. You know, perhaps the graphics were more eye catching this time. And one of the local news channel caught it. And they put it in online and there was a lot of people making comments. Obviously, there were no good comments. There were people making jokes, which I absolutely adore. I just love the fact that people get excited about it because they talk about it. And there was a lot of people complaining. It's like, oh, I wouldn't get into one of those things. That's not sanitary. Obviously, no one is going to do something that doesn't meet certain standards for patients. But And there were so many of them that the Secretary of State came public and said, actually, this is real. Wow. This guy is registered with the Secretary of State's office. His business is registered, as in people were questioning, is this true? Is this real? And the Secretary of State himself came out and made a comment about that, which was hilarious. And it was a great, great starter for our trip to New York. Wow. That is an incredible, incredible story. 
It was really interesting. Yeah. As far as the surgery itself, you perform a no scalpel, no needle form of surgery, right? So it's not yes. a cut, cut, snip, snip, the way men might imagine uh, something painful. Or Can you give us a sense of how the procedure works? Yes. It's not that I came up with anything. I mean, there's way smarter people than me who have come up with that. In the 1960s, Dr. Li Shiguan, a urologist from China, he was very interested on contraception. Hmm. And if you remember back then in China, there was this one-child policy and they were trying to control natality there. Mm -hmm. And the use of a scalpel seemed relatable to the idea of castration for men. And, wow. and, and in order to make it simpler, he started thinking about what to do. And he was trialing some chemical cauterization, so to speak, of the vast deferens. And then he came up with the idea of sharpening a forceps, an instrument. and made it very, very sharp and pointy. And he came up with the idea of instead of cutting the skin, to puncture the skin and then take advantage of the elasticity, the elastic fibers of the skin. So you poke a hole and then spread the skin. Hmm. It's very different than cutting the skin because when you cut the skin, you are cutting the fibers. So you have to put them back together. So if you're spreading the skin, mm -hmm. then you don't have to put it back together. And what happens when you put it back together, that means when you put a suture again to try to close the wound, is you cause more trauma. Sure. So he came up with that and that was a success because not only it was more appealing to men, but also the recovery time improved considerably. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-80s, actually, there was an organization now that is called Engender Health that took a, a group of physicians to China to learn with Dr. Shiquan, and they learned how to do vasectomies this way. And they brought it back to the U.S. So it really started taking off by the mid-90s. Hmm. But still, by the end of the 90s, 29% of the vasectomies that were done were just non-scalpel. And that is the non-scalpel technique. So we do it that way. Basically, with a regular vasectomy or a classical vasectomy, you have one incision in each side of the scrotum. Mm -hmm. And you use those incisions to take the vast deference out. You cut the communication of the vast deference. You cut the vast deference. And then you do uh, certain things to occlude the vast deference to avoid that they get together again. Because of the cutting that happens with the scalpel approach, you have to put a suture. The trauma is higher. With the nose scalpel, you use a single opening. So you puncture the skin in the center of the scrotum. And using the same opening, you get each individual vast deference one at a time and cut it and do the procedures that you need to do in order to occlude it. The difference is ridiculous. The potential risk of a hematoma, which is the biggest concern with a vasectomy, if it were to happen, was reduced considerably. So the chance of a hematoma with a classical technique with scalpel is about 3.1%. Whereas the chance of a hematoma in the hands of a, an experienced surgeon is, is less than 0.4% with a non-scalpel technique. That's much better. Sure. And this is a 15-minute procedure? Yeah, 10 to 15-minute procedure. Wow. That's right. You know, some people, if they're not doing it often enough, they know it can take them 30 minutes. But still, considering the fact that the patient comes in walking and leaves walking <laughs> after that and doesn't have to stay for recovery and doesn't have to go through the general anesthetic that a woman has to go through for a tubal ligation, mm -hmm. then it makes it absolutely much better. And a perfect candidate for a mobile clinic. Exactly. That's my point. You just park anywhere yeah. and just do it, right? If you think about that in terms of going back to the mobile clinic, 
there are a lot of other things that could be done that way. Sure. But we are so stuck in this ivory tower mentality in terms of uh, the provision of healthcare that it, it's difficult for people to accept that. Yeah. Reproductive health services, as I said, in other countries have been better accepted and have had increased use because of the mobility that a unit like that would provide. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't we do something like that? Can we just go to a town and then have a mobile reproductive service unit where you can provide, you know, implants, IUDs, STD screening, and do vasectomies on top of everything? I think that'd be fantastic. When you speak about it, it seems like a no-brainer. That's right. Especially given how many contraceptive deserts there are, even in, you know, a lot of states within the U.S. and given the high rates of unwanted pregnancies. So many of them are because of lack of access. That is correct. Uh, not always lack of information. A lot of people just aren't able to get to reproductive care services. That's right. And, and doing it that way, I mean, you, we carry four instruments. That's all I need, hmm. four instruments. And the procedure is really quick. And the way I do it, which is the way many of the surgeons from the from World Vasectomy Day do it, is just me. I really don't even have an assistant because that's exactly what we go and teach overseas. Hmm. That all you need is a very well experienced surgeon to do it. Yeah. You know, compared to a tubal ligation, you need the surgeon, you need an assistant, which is the scrub tech usually, you need a circulating nurse, you need the OR, you need the anesthesiologist. The infrastructure, the human infrastructure and the physical infrastructure is much bigger, which makes it much more expensive which is part of the pitch that I have every time we go to another country that doesn't have the promotion of vasectomies as, as much as they should have it. And it's like, why are you doing this many tubal ligations? If you do as many vasectomies, it's way cheaper. Sure. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, even from the economic standpoint. And isn't the number something ridiculous? Like there are six times as many tubal ligations worldwide? Yes. And that's one of my personal concerns and my personal missions. There's a big gap in between the utilization of tubal ligations and vasectomies. Worldwide, approximately there are 33 million vasectomies done. Out of those 33 million, 20 million alone are done between China and India. But the population of somewhere about 1.3 and 1.4 billion, well, it just makes sense that that many happens there. It's just by pure difference of population. I don't know about the numbers recently because in China has been very difficult to get vasectomies lately yeah. because of the change in the policy mm. of the government. Yeah. Now they want more people. Exactly. And they are limiting the access to vasectomies, which is a shame. But 33 million vasectomies done a year, give or take, versus 225 million tubal ligations in the world. Wow. The discrepancy is huge. Well, it's interesting. You've mentioned on another podcast that we listened to that the ratio of ligations to um, vasectomies varies by culture and place. Correct. Where you said the U.S. was two to three times. For every vasectomy that happens in the U.S. is about two to three, depends on where you are, tubal ligations. Okay. So it's about twice as many tubal ligations, you can argue that that's not that bad, particularly considering that about 49% of the tubal ligations happen after pregnancy within 48 hours of birth, which means oh. they either get it in a cesarean section or it happens after the patient has given birth. Sure. It's an actual surgery on top of the birth. You know, the C-section, it makes total sense. The patient has her abdomen open already and the tubes are readily accessible for the surgeon to do the procedure. Makes sense. But the rest of them, 
are what we call interval tubal ligations, which means the patient is not pregnant, you know, and she has chosen to be sterilized, which is half of what happens in the U.S. The U.S. Uh, give or take about 700,000 tubal ligations per year, about 345, 350,000 are interval tubal ligations. So to me, those are 345,000 opportunities mm-hmm. to do vasectomies, Yeah. right? Because if the other ones are happening, assuming that they all were happening because they occurred within a, a cesarean section, then you don't count those. Yeah. But not all of those 355,000 happen after a cesarean section. Mm-hmm. Probably half of those happen at that point. Those are another 120, 130,000 plus opportunities to do more vasectomies. Yeah. It seems like, oh, it might not be that bad because it's, you have to consider those factors when you see the ratio, especially if you compare it to other countries. You know, you look at Bolivia or you look at Ecuador. In Ecuador, for every vasectomy that you do, there are 30 tubal ligations done. Wow. wow. I mean, that's the huge gap. Yeah. When we see the difference between the number of tubal ligations and vasectomies that happen worldwide... All I can see when I see those numbers is that men are absent. Mm -hmm. Men are not participating in reproductive health matters as much as we could. Mm -hmm. Because continuously, we think that this is a thing of individuals with female parts. Sure. That's what we think. Yeah. And that's in part because men have had the idea that getting a vasectomy might take something away from them, right? Not just their ability to get their partners pregnant, which is the intended effect, but something else goes away. What are those misconceptions? Well, the misconception is that's going to affect my erection. It's going to affect my libido. My sexual drive is going to be different. And they cannot be more wrong than that because none of those things are affected. Mm -hmm. But because of that fear in the collective mind of man, we don't talk about that. You mentioned in Quebec, eight or nine times as many yes. vasectomies versus... Yes. So so overall in Canada, the ratio is totally inverted. So in Canada, for every tubal ligation that is done, there are two to three vasectomies done. Really? In the entire Canada, yes. Huh. So and in Quebec City, it's higher. Is it because of the people who are doing vasectomies there, which one of them is Dr. Michelle Lebrecht, a really good friend of mine, who perhaps one of the people who knows the most about vasectomies in the world. He's published ridiculously on that. And he is responsible for a lot of those vasectomies in Quebec City. <laughs> I mean, his practice, they do, I think, about 3,000 vasectomies per year. So, I mean, it's a really big practice. So that could have something to do with that, but also is the acceptance you know, anecdotally, I tell you that talking with Michelle, it tells me that many of the gynecologists actually tell their patients, hey, tell your husband to get a vasectomy instead. Yes. Uh, why are you going to get a tubal ligation? Yeah. And they could be doing the tubal ligations, yeah. right? Let's just put it plain, simple at the financial level. It's more interventions for them. It's more revenue for the gynecologist. But if the gynecologist is this is not the right thing for you. Just tell your husband. Yeah. Why are you going to go through that? And then I think behind that, there's a lot of empowerment. Mm-hmm. empowerment of women, perhaps also empowerment of men, you know, feeling like they can do something about that. So I personally hold very close to my heart the idea, the mission of flipping that relationship in the United States, because we're not too bad. I mean, there men are participating, but I can flip that relationship and make it look more like Canada. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the same reason why I'm so passionate about going to other countries, because I see that the participation is not there. Colombia, my own country, similar thing. There's about 22 allegations per vasectomy done in Colombia. 
that's not okay. Yeah. That means men are not participating enough. And granted, we don't have a whole lot to do in terms of contraception. I mean, it's condoms and vasectomies. Yeah. And World Vasectomy Day was actually founded in 2012, right? By Jonathan Stack and Douglas Stein? Correct. Yes. Jonathan Stack is a filmmaker, very accomplished one. He's gotten a couple of Emmy Awards and has been nominated for documentaries to the Academy Award. And uh, Douglas Stein, who's a urologist and based out of Tampa, Florida, they both created World Vasectomy Day. It all started after uh, Jonathan Stack had his own experience about his vasectomy. He got to that point in his life when he thought about making that decision. And as a good filmmaker, he wanted to document everything about his decision. So he started visiting different people within the community of urologists and vasectomies. And one urologist in New York City, where Jonathan is from, told him, you should meet Doc Stein. He said, who's that guy? Oh, this urologist does a ton of vasectomies down in Florida. That's all he does. He travels around the peninsula doing vasectomies. So he went to meet him. And Doug had been working with a now retired urologist. Mm -hmm. He's originally from the Philippines, who created an organization, a nonprofit called Non Scalpel Vasectomy International. Hmm. The Philippines is overly populated, and yeah. he wanted to provide services for free. In Dog, they knew each other, and Dog was working with him, and then they started going to Haiti as well. So Jonathan saw that work, and he got very interested. Jonathan is, as a filmmaker, who was very accomplished doing documentaries. Mm -hmm. But all these documentaries happen in areas, as he would say it, where men are doing wrong things, things that didn't help society. It was war documentaries, sure. you know, documentaries in jails. You know, he's very well known in Angola prison down in Louisiana because he's gone there many times and done several documentaries in, in that prison. He says that he was at a point in his life when he felt that he just couldn't see anything good in men, you know, in people. And when he started going around with Dogstein, he went initially just to talk about his own vasectomy and he saw what he was doing. He started following him and he started asking every guy who was getting a vasectomy why they did it. Yeah. And he started seeing that every single person all of a sudden was talking about love when they were doing it. Wow. And I'm doing it because my wife has gone through enough and I think I should do this for her. So he saw that men were doing it for the love of their partners. Huh. I'm doing it because I have three children already and I cannot afford any more children. You know, I want to be able to give to my three children what they need mm -hmm. when they need it. And he, so he saw that men were doing it for the love of their children. And even men without any children would come and get a vasectomy and say, well, I'm doing it because it's too many of us on this planet. And I really don't have any interest in having children. And so he saw that men were doing it for the love of the environment as well. So it just changed completely his mind. Yeah. He said men are capable of doing good. Yes, right. And then it just changed completely. So he stopped doing the whole film that he was doing about himself getting a vasectomy and made an entire documentary on Doc Stein. It was in Netflix for a while. It's called The Vasectomist. And talk about him and what he was doing. And with those trips, they decided to go to Adelaide, Australia in 2012 and do this big event where they thought they could do live televised vasectomies and cameras will be rolling and they would just put them in on TV and people were volunteers and they were signing waivers. So they did live vasectomies. 
And that was the very first world vasectomy day. That was in November in 2012 in Adelaide, Australia. Jonathan says that he thought, well, this is a one-time thing. It's been nine years and every year we're doing this. And some of us got into that along the way. I got involved with them in 2015. It is really exciting every time we have an activity like this. So every year it's been a different country. We've been to Kenya, Indonesia, Rwanda, Haiti, Colombia. Uh, We've been to Ecuador. And in every single experience, it's just fascinating. So this is going to be our 10th anniversary And we're planning on doing something even more meaningful this year. Wow. Yeah, when you look at the degree of impact that you can have with different types of actions, this is one tiny little action that has probably the most impact environmentally, in terms of human rights, in terms of animals, in terms of how our planet is being dominated by so many of us. It is absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. And that's why we can talk and talk about this for days. It is yeah. fascinating to me the potential impact in so many aspects, as you just said, Nandita, that a vasectomy can have. Yeah. One of the things that I've always said is that man who comes in and gets his vasectomy, it could be a wonderful man who's had you know two or three children, who's doing this because he realizes that he has to play a role in reproduction yeah. and, and he wants to show that that he cares for his family and he's making a responsible decision. During those 10 minutes, you know, he's getting his vasectomy. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. You know, he's showing that he cares, right? Or you can be a really bad person who has four children with three different women and pays no child support whatsoever and doesn't care about the environment. But during those 10 minutes, because of what he does, because of that decision he's made, He's a wonderful man as well. So it's just mind-blowing to me what you can do with a vasectomy because the awareness you can bring to people about so many different things during that moment is so big. I mean, I've had people in the office who have gone to the psychiatrist after coming to see me, not because they had a terrible experience, (laughs) but because the conversation led them to realize that they've been having issues, not to be graphic, but when an individual allows you to touch his genitals, when you're a total stranger yeah. and you're holding in one hand sharp instrument, I mean, that person is being so vulnerable in front of you. You should be smart enough to take advantage of the opportunity and do much more good yes. than the good that you do by just doing a sterilization procedure. Mm-hmm. I ask many of these men that come to the office what might seem a, an obvious question. Then they come with their partner, and I usually tell them, So, why are you getting this vasectomy? And many times you get the usual answer, Oh, well, we don't want to have any more children. I say, Well, that's the practical reason for it. You know, obviously, that's the desired outcome. But why are you doing this? What do you mean, Doc? Sure. Well, I mean, she could have gotten a tubal ligation. Right? I'm not trying to talk him out of it. I yes. just, I want them to think more about why they made that decision. And they said, well, because it's easier for me. You know, she has to go through all that stuff in the OR. And I said, do you understand what that means? And they look at me like I'm speaking in a different language. And I said, what that means is that you care about her. Right. How else are you showing that you care about her and about your children. Mm. Sometimes they say, well, it's because of my children. You know, we have plenty. I love them, but I just don't want to have any more. How else 
do you show that you care? Yeah. And deep inside, I don't know if I'm too naive, but I want to believe that taking advantage of that vulnerable moment when I say things like that, I just make something come up in their brains or yeah. at least they leave thinking, yeah, I care about her. Or the gentlemen who come and say, I never wanted to have children. Good. Because I want to be able to experience the world in a different way. So that means you care about yourself. Yes. And so much of it is the validation of good deeds, right? That's right. You're validating good actions so that not only are they proud of what they're doing for their partner, but in the process, you're also normalizing it. Yes. But I'm very careful with something, Nandita, and is that when it comes to to have a more equal balance in terms of reproductive interventions, we don't want men to think that this is it, right? Right. It would be a wrong assumption for men to think that, hey, I did my vasectomy. That's it. I don't need to do any more. No, no, it's a wonderful thing Mm -hmm. for men to be active participants in reproduction by getting a vasectomy. But that's not enough. Mm -hmm. How else are we participating? How else are we showing those individuals with female parts that we care, Mm -hmm. right? That individuals with male parts care for the other, right? We are in the middle of a situation where rights of women to make decisions about their own bodies are at this moment at risk. Yeah. And, and what are we doing, right? So yeah, you can get a vasectomy, but that's not it. That's not enough. It'd be a good start. <laughs> that's right. It's a great display of interest. It's a good display of commitment, but that's not it. Yeah. If, if you get married, yeah, you get married, but that's not it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the beginning. Yes. <laughs> you go and take your vows however you want to do it. You go to the front of a judge, in front of a priest or Whatever ceremony you want to do. Yeah, you're just publicly saying, hey, I care, but that's not it. Mm-hmm. Same thing here, right? I try to do that with World Vasectomy. They try to convey that because we don't want men to think, all right, well, I, I did my duty already. I had my vasectomy. Don't ask anything else from me. Oh, it turns <laughs> out we're pretty behind. <laughs> right. you know? It turns out we have a lot to catch up. It's good work that you're doing, Asgard. It's incredible. And especially the philosophical approach that you're lodging into people's minds to think beyond just that one action. And even for some people, I'm sure they're having existential questions about life and what does it mean to bring new life into the planet? What does it mean for you to use your own body to create that kind of impact, whether it's good, you know, for you, for your child, for the planet? I think what you're doing with these conversations sounds like it's having a domino effect in making people think beyond just this one surgical procedure. That's right. I've said it before. This has been my excuse to talk about more things. The participation of men in reproduction, definitely an excuse for me to talk about family dynamics. That is the family doctor within speaking. Mm -hmm. It is important that people understand that it's coming to the decision of having this procedure requires so many things mm-hmm. that they might take for granted. It's important that they go back and think a little bit about those. I mean, there are people who come here and just a wonderful discussion. They have thought about this so much that I learned yeah. from them a lot. I had this patient and I actually got to take care of their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And this patient comes after the very first child they had, the first and only child, and comes and gets a vasectomy. Obviously, I'm not anyone to try to make people change their minds because I have to be respectful, and I am, about reproductive decisions. But 
I have to put things in perspective. So I talked with him and I said, look, there's a potential risk of regret and I need you to understand that. I want you to think that if you follow through with this decision, at least in the back of your memory, you know that we have had this conversation and that things were put in perspective for you in case you, you change your mind in the future. And he says, yes, I need to tell you this, Doc. I'm a janitor at a school. I make enough for me to live fairly well with my wife the way we live. And I think that my job, which I have no intentions to improve, will give me enough to take care of our child. So I understand that another child would not allow me to provide to my children what I need or what I can provide to this only child. Wow. And it was just this deep, deep conversation about why he wanted to do that. It was, yeah, sure, you know, he didn't want his wife to go through the whole thing. He felt like he needed to participate. But those deep conversations just ah, are so enriching and so wonderful. It's the same thing with this gentleman, 23-year-old gentleman in Mexico who comes in and gets a vasectomy, no children, the only child in his family. And before doing the vasectomy, after going through a whole process of counseling that the Mexican authorities had for him, I asked him about his decision and tried to put things in perspective. I said, well, it, it seems like you've talked to everybody about this. So let me just remind you that a sterilization procedure is a permanent decision. Mm -hmm. Just to close my discussion with him, you know, my, my talk with him. And he grabbed my arm, looked at me in the eye, and he said, thank you, doc. I understand that. But it turns out having children is also a permanent decision. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> it blows your mind because it's like you see that those people have thought so thoroughly about that. Yes. And it's so enriching for me. I enjoy every single one of my vasectomies for that reason. Because it's stories like that. Yes. That is a really beautiful story. And, you know, so many of the conversations that we're having in our work in shining a light on pronatalism, which is, you know, a set of these pressures that are placed on people that parenthood is a default option Correct. instead of allowing a whole set of options on the table for people to choose from and decide, is this the right path for me, etc. We're having similar conversations with people because these are some of the most sacred decisions people make finding a partner, having a biological child. And that's, as you say, is a permanent decision that has an impact Correct. on the rest of your life and on the rest of the child's life. And I think it's just incredible that you also have this educational opportunity when you're having these conversations with people to help them understand both sides of the coin in terms of shared reproductive responsibility with their partners, Correct. but also reproductive responsibility in the biggest possible way. It is wonderful. I mean, I really like it. I enjoy it so much because of what I think I can accomplish with this. Yeah. You know, changing that mentality. And I guess it's my two cents. You know, I put those two cents and I hope those become a 50 cents and a dollar later in their minds. Yeah, it shows how much you care. You know, you could just turn this, have an assembly line vasectomy operation. That's obviously not what you're doing. No, I can't do that. I wouldn't be able to do that. We have a little bit of everything. I mean, there are some of our colleagues, they have a huge, ridiculous volume of vasectomies. And I respect what they're doing. I just, my approach and the approach that we try to suggest from World Vasectomy Day is one that has this holistic view yeah. of what we are trying to accomplish with the individual. 
because I think I couldn't have said it any better, Nandita, when you were talking about the transcendental aspect of these decisions. You know, we cannot just talk about contraception or sterilization specifically in this situation lightly and say, well, yeah, no, we sterilize people. We just reduce the population like this and then reduce the tubal ligations, period. Because it's not that simple, mm -hmm. uh, sterilization, because it's affecting this important function, yeah. it has a huge social, emotional impact, yeah. you know, in communities that you have to approach it in a different way. You know, people historically have used and misused sterilization That's right. in a coercive way that we cannot just talk, you know, lightly about what this means. We have to see the good behind this and we have to own it, Yes, you know, before it was imposed. During the early 20th century, we saw the tragic history of eugenics in the United States. Yes. Up to 32 states by 1930 had involuntary sterilization laws. Yes, right. And that was a terrible thing. Now, we are claiming the power of being able to make that decision for permanent sterilization. And we need to make it clear that it's a matter of empowerment for men mm -hmm. so that we can say that we can be active participants in reproduction. It's a matter of empowerment for women because women can say, I am not the only one carrying this burden. Yes. You know, I have a partner, even if it's not my physical actual partner, but, but those individuals with male parts are partners in reproduction with me. It's a matter of empowerment for families because we're saying that with a procedure like this, families can then allocate their resources in a more appropriate way for their members to use them whenever they need to. And we're not talking about only financial resources, but emotional resources, social resources. And it's a matter of empowerment for the environment itself. Because when we care about the number of people that exist on earth and how we provide for us, if we put a limit, when we make a decision about a permanent sterilization procedure, we will be able to care better for our own species and the environment. So it's regaining that and feel empowered with that procedure. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I could just talk and talk about this. I love it. It has changed my life in ways that I did not expect. All the experiences that I've gone through, I wouldn't have thought that I would have ended doing this, but it's so satisfying. And one of the reasons why it is also satisfying is because I always said that I'm biased because I have two daughters. So I want to leave behind a world that in terms of reproductive equity and equality, it's a little more fair. Mm -hmm. And when I see that they see that passion that I have about this and they actually share it, that makes it more satisfying. Incredible. I mean, it's not just because I have children. I mean, it's also other people that I've seen. I've had patients that I used to take care of who were adolescents and they saw me doing what I was doing and they got super interested. It's generating that passion in others that also makes it very fulfilling. Absolutely. Yes. We can relate to so much of the work that you're doing. So much of the messaging that we're using with our work at Population Balance is philosophically oriented. We're really asking people to ask themselves the bigger questions about the fundamental drivers for how we relate to the planet, how we relate to each other, how we relate to non-human beings. Where does the desire for biological children come from? To what degree is it authentic? To what degree is it pressured? To what degree are we ready and able 
to bring a child into this world. And when you start getting down to the real questions like these, it generates some of the most incredible conversations. Because we're not used to in our society having deep conversations with one another. So much of it is just surface level stuff. We wish we could have another hour with you. (laughs) No, I have had a terrific time with you both. I really would love to continue the conversation about what I could learn more about your organization and be part of that effort to bring more awareness of what we're doing. We're not just surviving. Yeah, sometimes it might seem for many that we are surviving because we are caught in this rat race of just going to work and making a living. And one of the things that the pandemic itself has done for many, and that's why we're having this issue with many people leaving their workplace, is that it has put things in perspective. We have to think about what we're doing in the environment we are in. We have to think about what we're doing with the people that we have around, Yeah, with our family, understanding that there's a plurality in the definition of family nowadays, you know? Yes. Are we just using wisely our time here? Mm-hmm. Irrespective of the moral opinion or religious beliefs of many, we cannot get stuck on the idea of hoping for a better life later when we have this wonderful, wonderful gift in front of us. You know, whoever or however we ended up with this gift, we have a beautiful world. We have human beings and other species that uh, we should be delighted with. We shouldn't be wasting our time. Yeah, well said. That's a great example of you extending beyond the vasectomy into the the whole life of caring for other people and, and the planet, but in this case, your loved ones, your partners. Yes. Yeah, it's so great that you're a passionate promulgator proselytizer of this, of vasectomies, (laughs) and to have somebody with such caring and compassion and and has the big picture in mind, but is also able to work on a very psychological, personal level with people. It's a rare combination. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for those words, Alan. Once again, I appreciate it very much. And thank you. Thank you for having me here. And hopefully this is not going to be the last time we talk. Wow, that was great. I could listen to Eskar talk about virtually anything for hours. (laughs) He's so informed and entertained, and he's got this combined interest in psychology and an obvious deep care for his patients that was reflected in him winning the 2017 Iowa Family Physician of the Year. And it gives him these unique abilities to make those men feel heard and cared for. And he's doing that at a time where they're often feeling quite vulnerable in his hands. (laughs) Yes. And I love how Esgar is helping to gently and carefully dismantle these pervasive pronatalist pressures that men experience to have children and large families and to take a more intentional role in shared reproductive responsibility. To end off today's episode, here's another clip that we've chosen from an American TV show, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where Sergeant Terry Jeffords explains what a vasectomy is not. Okay. Great. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, doctor. Have a good one. Hey there, Sarge. Not to pry, but I couldn't help it over here. Are you going to the doctor? Everything okay? I'm getting a vasectomy. My ears are burning. Someone say vasectomy? I got snipped. No big deal. Just numbs you out from trunk to skunk for a year. It's not supposed to. Trunk to skunk? Hold it up. You're going to let some quack doctor just knife around down there? You are blessed with a great power. 
and you should never snip its wings. You should let it soar. Thanks, guys. That's enough. I don't need any more input. Neither does your wife, I guess. Look, you guys, if the sergeant wants to chop off his penis, that is his choice. That's not what a vasectomy is. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Visit populationbalance.org to learn more. And if you feel inspired by our work, please consider supporting us using the donate button. Until next time, I'm Nandita Bajraj, reminding you that we can all make a dent in this movement by choosing small footprint families, whatever family means to you.